You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Here's where we are. I am so excited to jump into the book of Obadiah because this is really just my own personal reflections in my time with the Lord. And so uh, recently I had to take Lauren's car to uh, the Chrysler dealership and I sat down and I'm like, all right, Lord, what do you want to speak to me? And I wanted to go to the Old Testament. And so I typed in, what's the shortest book in the Old Testament? And Obadiah popped up and I was like, oh, I was like, I feel like I missed that one. And so uh, I opened to it, and then the Lord just began to speak to my heart and my mind. Um, And so today really is just an opportunity for me to share with you what God is teaching me. Um, and, And this is kind of where the series King and Kingdom was birthed out of, is that we have a king. That king is king of kings and lord of lords. And that king has a kingdom. And he invites us to be a part of his kingdom, not just as a servant, but as a child, as one of his heirs. And so, so I'm pumped just to jump into this. And, and if you're coming in here this morning and you have very little church experience, or maybe this is your first time in church, um, I want you to know you're probably uh, completely on the same playing field as most of the people in the room. Because this is one of those books that people just kind of brush over. They, they either have read it in their lives or they haven't. Um, so you get into a Bible reading plan and somehow it skips Obadiah. And so I want you to know that this is fresh and new for us to hear from what the Lord wants to say to us today. And so what I want to do is I actually want to show a video. And, and here's why. Because there's so much that I want to cover. And this is the only week we're going to be talking about the book of Obadiah, this, this minor prophet. Um, so this video is going to give us a little bit of history and context context to what we're about to dive into and who the people of Edom are and and who uh, Obadiah is and all of that. So why don't you take uh, just a few minutes, watch this video, and then I'm going to come back up. The book of the prophet Obadiah. This is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses. And at first glance, it does not look very promising. It's a series of divine judgment poems against the ancient people of Edom, which was a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. However, there is way, way more going on here. So first, here's the backstory. The people of Edom were unique because they had a shared ancestry with the Israelites. They both belonged to the family of Abraham, who, with Sarah had their son Isaac, who with his wife Rebecca had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now the book of Genesis told us the story of these two brothers, and to say the very least, they had a tense relationship. They each later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the name of the families that descended from them. And these families replayed the same difficult relationship of their ancestors. Israel and Edom had enormous tensions throughout the centuries, but they still shared that family bond. And it's that bond that was betrayed and shattered in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. So when Israel was invaded and conquered by Babylon, the people of Edom took advantage by plundering other Israelite cities and then capturing and even killing Israelite refugees. Now, in other prophetic books, God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence. And so here, Obadiah does the same for Edom. All right, so I know that that might have been a lot of information, but what we're seeing here is we, we mostly know about the story of, of Jacob and Esau, but what we forget sometimes is that Jacob wrestles with God and becomes Israel, 
And then Esau becomes this nation of Edom. And so this is actually one of the only uh, prophets that is speaking to a Gentile nation, the nation of Esau, not coming out of the Israelites. And so it's a Jewish prophet that is speaking to a Gentile nation and giving them a judgment from God. And so what they're doing right now is Edom is sitting up on this holy hill. They have kind of perched up there in this city that they've built, um, and they are growing and building resentment. See, in the story of, of Jacob and Esau, Jacob is the younger brother, and he steals Esau's birthright for a bowl of stew. And that bitterness and resentment had played out generation after generation after generation after generation. In fact, I want you to even think about it. If you are harboring any bitterness or resentment against anybody, I want you to know that that little seed will have huge effects down the line. And so that is what we're seeing play out here. We're seeing this bitterness and resentment cause Edom to rise up and try to create for themselves this kingdom where they feel like they're impenetrable, this kingdom where they want to be king. They want to be in control. So let me read verses one through four again now that we have this context. This is a vision of Obadiah. He's the Jewish prophet. He says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. So God is speaking through the prophet Obadiah to Edom, saying, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Now, what's the warning here? The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? This is their self-exaltation, their pride welling up within them, thinking that they cannot be conquered, thinking that they are the best of the best. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So here's the problem. Pride and self-exaltation lead to destruction. Pride and self-exaltation lead to destruction. There is not one situation in any of our lives that that's not going to be true. I mean, think of any marriage relationship. Think of any dating relationship that you find yourself in. There is not one argument that you have where you think that you are 100% right that ends up going well. Married couples, is that correct? See, we are two sinners. In any relationship, there are two sinners. And everybody is bringing sin into the equation. And there's never a scenario where you think you are 100% right where it's going to end up well. Never. Think about um, relationship with your, with your parents, kids. Think about those relationships. There's never a scenario where what comes out of your mouth or your heart says, hey, listen, mom, dad, I know what I'm doing. There's never a scenario where that's going to end up well for you. Or the, I got this. Or even the the mindset of, hey, mom, dad, I deserve. 
And that's not just from kids. I know that's from me when I feel like I've had a good week of eating healthy and I deserve ice cream. We have this mindset. It's pride and self-exaltation. Students, where are my students at? Where are your boys? I got Josie. Where are they? Oh, there they are. Oh, the back. You guys moved back on me. All right, so Caleb, Drew, Ben, right, you guys? So um, I want you to watch this not only in yourself, but, but also, um, are you guys listening to me? Here. Um, there's not one scenario, like, I want you to watch this in yourselves. I want you to watch this at your school. Um, we used to call this uh, the big man on campus. But if there's ever a moment in your life or the, the, the kids in your school that they put their chest out and they put their head up like this, right, that ever's going to go well, right? It, it, they walk around like, well, you get this at the gym a lot, right? These guys come walking down and they're like, it's like they're penguins because they kind of waddle. But like when the chest goes up and the head goes up like this, never ends well. Pride and self-exaltation is causing you to think highly of yourself, perching up in your holy hill. Any interaction with family, coworkers, neighbors, that waiter that got your order wrong two, three, four times, now you're afraid to send it back because you don't know what's going to happen to your food? I mean, pride causes us to hurt ourselves and hurt others. We don't want anyone to tell you can't do this. I mean, uh, there's that old, like, kind of clever sales trick that you have. It says all clever salesmen, all they need to do is say, hey, let me show you something several of your neighbors said that you couldn't afford. You want to buy it, right? If your neighbor says you can't afford it or if your neighbor says you, you wouldn't get it, now you want two just to prove them wrong. And often our pride and our self-exaltation, it comes from our insecurity. We fabricate and put on a mask, trying to fabricate this false identity that, that we've got it all together. I mean, I even think it's interesting that uh, a subset of our culture defines a whole lifestyle by the word pride. And then what we end up doing is painting it in rainbow, the, the thing that shows the mercy and the grace of God in the Bible when Noah and his family is, is experiencing and being brought through this flood, the judgment of God. We have taken the word pride and we have colored it that color that shows we are our own king and we have tried to establish our own kingdom. That's what our world does. And that's what the devil tries to cause us to do, is to think that we know best. See, Edom, they felt wronged. They felt like something was taken from them, something that they deserved. They felt like they were supposed to be the ones up on the holy hill. They felt slighted. And so what did they do? They overcompensated. They created this house on a hill. They let this bitterness, resentment build. They built the beautiful city. So they were driven by their accomplishments and their success, all in order to prove their worth. So when 
those that they felt wronged them were hurting, what they did is they, they pounced like a predator after injured prey. Like, like, let me read this to you. Verses 10 and 11. Israel is being plundered. Israel is, is being hurt, being run out of their city. And so their cousins, instead of helping them and coming to their aid, felt like, now this is our chance to prove that we're better. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You know, ever hear the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Prideful people are predators of injured prey. If you, if you look around in your schools, guys, if you, if you look around in your neighborhoods, the people that perch themselves up on these holy hills, they, they go after those that are hurting, that are broken, that are being plundered. Don't be this type of person. Don't lift yourself up on a holy hill. Don't act like the big man on campus. So Edom and all the prideful will be brought down and destroyed. That's what we see in verse 4b. But who will bring them down? Because it doesn't say that all of a sudden the people that are the prey are going to be the ones to bring them down. Who is going to be the judge and bring the justice? Here's what it says. The king will bring down the proud. Look at, look at 4b. Or look at all verse 4. Though you soar aloof like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, your pride, your self-exaltation, from there, I, who's speaking? The king. He's saying, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Look at 18b. They shall burn them and consume them, and they shall be like no survivor in the house. There shall be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. He declares his judgment that king will bring down the proud. Listen, God is God. We are not. And he doesn't share his throne. And often I think we try to just kind of get into the throne a little bit or take little aspects of the throne just to get a little bit of our own say in there because we think that we may know a little bit better. Oh, God's off doing something else. He doesn't really know or care about anything going on here. I'll just take the reins for a little bit. Right? I, even the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot, has all of the connotations of that you're the pilot and he's just assisting you. God will not tolerate this sin. That's what it is. Pride and self-exaltation is sin. It's the seed of sin. I mean, even Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3, 4, and 5 what is, what, what is the interaction and what does the devil try to do through the serpent and get Eve to think about? Genesis 3, 4, and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He's trying to get her to question God and his authority. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened. And what? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And God is not just speaking to Edom here. 
This is actually a judgment that is given to Edom, but for all nations. Where do I see that? Well, look at verse 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon, what? All the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. They shall be as though they have never been. This is a hinge verse here in this passage where he takes this judgment upon Edom, this specific people group, and brings it to all the nations in the world. Well, where do we see this? Well, the word for Esau in Hebrew is actually a very similar, if not the same word, as we see for Adam, which is used in Scripture in the Old Testament to talk about humanity. And so God is declaring this. This isn't like an old letter that was like found one day that doesn't apply to us. This was a judgment that God gave a specific people, but that's supposed to be read and passed down from generation to generation as a warning sign to those that are coming in the future so that they won't make the same mistakes that Edom made, which is to let their pride and self-exaltation be the thing that drives their life. So God is warning us, and it's not like some people in this room are exempt If you're sitting here right now and you're like, oh, this is really good for those that I know in my life that are prideful and that exalt themselves, I want you to know it's actually for you. The mere thought that you're having about all those other people that need to hear this message that you want to forward it to at the end of service is just showing the fact that our hearts are hardened to the message. Here's the deal. This is what God wanted to tell me when I was reading this. I'm not exempt from this. This is for all the nations. God's judgment will fall on all the nations. All people will be humbled. That's why in 4b he says, I will bring you down. All people will be judged. In 15a, where he talks about the day of the Lord is the day of his judgment. And in verse 15b, as you have done, it shall done to you. People will reap what they sow. And this prophecy came to pass for Edom. And how, how do I know that? When was the last time you took your, your, someone out or you went to dinner at an Edomite restaurant? Did you get in your spam folder a lot of like all-inclusive trips to uh, Edom? No. Why? Because it doesn't exist anymore. God will destroy the proud. He will wipe them off the face of this earth. He will bring them down. But here's, but here's the good news, because as in all the prophetic books that we see in the Old Testament, God's judgment is not his final word. There is good news. So what is this good news? The good news is that the king will restore his kingdom. That's the good news that we see here today. So if you're sitting here and you're like, man, this is heavy. Here's good news. God wins. He already won. This is what we're seeing in verses 17 through 21. We're seeing him declare that he is the victor and he will restore his kingdom. God's wrath will fall on all, but because of Jesus's 
grace and love and mercy that will also fall on all nations. Jesus is the hope for all people. And so there are two, two prophecies, two books that were written right before Obadiah. And at the end of those two other prophecies, we see how this grace covers all people as well. And so at the end of the book of Joel, in chapters 2 and 3, we see that what will happen after the day of the Lord. So after this judgment falls, what's going to happen after the day of the Lord? So Joel 2 and 3 says this, God will save Jerusalem and all who call on his name. This is the idea of repentance. Amos 9, 11 through 15 talks about God restoring his kingdom through David's line. You know who comes through David's line, his lineage? Jesus. He's going to restore all nations through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it includes, guess what? You <laughs> and me. And here's how Obadiah ends. What's the last sentence in the book of Obadiah? And this is where, like, my mind was just blown at the end of reading this book. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. God sent Jesus to restore his kingdom. And he invites you, you specifically, you who are proud, you who are self-exalting, he invites you to find freedom and family in Jesus. But how? How do we experience this freedom? How do we experience the family that God has set aside for us? Well, here's, here's the response. We repent and we trust. We repent and we trust. So this is how this plays out. Repentance. For every way you stand up or have stood up on your holy hill of pride and self-exaltation. Is everybody tracking with me? And I just want to make sure I'm not the only one who, who does that. Has everybody at some point stood up on a holy hill of pride and self-exaltation? Look at the person next to you. See if they're shaking their head yes or no. Okay, just I want to make sure that we all understand we're kind of in the same boat here. For every way that you've stood up on that hill, repentance is you giving it to the Lord and asking for forgiveness. That's what repentance is. And it's from God first and then also from people. And so, so here's how this plays out. Men, when you leave here today, you may have to look at your wife or your kids, or maybe it's your brothers or sisters, and say, hey, I'm sorry. You know this week, I screwed it up. Parents, you may have to go into your kids' room tonight when you're putting them in the bed and say, hey, I'm sorry. I messed this up. Maybe it's a relationship with your boss or your coworkers, or maybe the neighbor that messed up your mulch. And you need to ask forgiveness. Before you do that, go to the Lord and receive his forgiveness that he has given you through Jesus. And then go and reconcile with those around you. 
Saying I'm sorry is a great way to get off that holy hill. That's called repentance. If we're ever at a place in our lives where we feel like, no, I should not apologize, or I should not apologize first, that is us standing up, waiting to pounce when the prey is injured. That's why in relationships we tend to drum up the past. We're holding on to that one thing that they did so that when we do something wrong, we can throw that in their face. That will never glorify God. That will never restore relationship. So we have to understand that God has set forth in his word a process. He has told us what is good for us. And he has said, hey, it's good for you not to perch up there in your eagle's nest. But come down and recognize you're human. And when you mess up, say, I'm sorry. That is what God calls us to because he's called us to unity and reconciliation and love and mercy and grace. And their response has nothing to do, nothing to do with what God calls you to do. I may need to say that again. Because we drum up in our minds an idea, right? We, we have to muster up courage. I get that. Hopefully that you're doing it not with your own human ability, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're like, okay, I need to go apologize for this person, but they also need to apologize to me. You ever have that feeling? So you go, okay, God, I'm going to make a deal with you. Here's my deal. I'm going to go say I'm sorry. And then they have to say this to me. Because if they don't, then I'm taking back my sorry. Oh, I might be hitting too many buttons right now. I feel this. Because that's what we do. I do it. Oh, I'll apologize all day. As long as you own up to what you did. It's not what God calls us to. Our... Apology should not have conditions. In fact, God in his word tells us through Matthew 18 that, that we should forgive 70 times 7. Continuously, completely, fully. Don't make yourself 70 times 7 boxes that you have to check off. I've done it. I've done my duty. No, he's saying when you forgive, you forgive completely. Not dependent on what they're going to do back to you. And so, our response is to repent. I love what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. We need to repent. Repenting is laying down our pride. 2 Corinthians 5.15, I'm going to read this in the NLT because, because I think it says it in such an uh, artistic and beautiful way. This is a paraphrase of the ESV. It says, he died for everyone. This is Jesus. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Where do we find the courage or the energy or the ability to forgive? It's through the gospel. Everything 
terrible that you have ever done that you are currently doing and that you will do in the future, Jesus has taken on the cross. And he has offered you the fullness of forgiveness. He doesn't hold back little bits of forgiveness. He gives it all to you. Unconditionally. So it's out of an overflow of that that we then forgive others. And so we repent and then we trust. We trust Jesus for our salvation. Yes, then we also trust Jesus that he is going to heal the wounds that those other people with pride and exaltation have done to us. That he is the judge. He is the justifier. So we're not only trusting him for our own salvation and our own forgiveness and our own repentance, but we're actually also trusting him for the response of those that have hurt us. Those seeds of bitterness and resentment are a cancer that will destroy you. And often we give people way too much power. We give the devil a foothold in our lives because we're holding on to those seeds of resentment and bitterness. I just want to encourage you, don't do that. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting the work that God wants to do in your own heart. In fact, you're thinking about it. Can I tell you this? You're thinking about it way more than that other person. You're dwelling on something day in and day out, and they may not even remember it. And that stinks. And I'm sorry, because there are people in this room that have been abused. There are people in this room that have been hurt beyond measure, that have been completely wronged. But the devil is using that to destroy your current relationships. He's using that to destroy your faith and destroy you glorifying him and serving him with your life. Because often when we have that resentment and bitterness in us, we don't want to serve the Lord. We don't feel like we're worthy. And so often that stuff is just this seed inside of us that causes death and decay and destruction. So we repent, yes, but we also have to trust. Just like Edom and Israel... God calls you to forgive just like he has forgiven us. If you need some extra reading in this, go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a great passage of scripture if you're struggling with forgiveness to just sit and read and ask the Lord, God, what would you have me do with this? And we also, as your church, we want to walk with you in this. If you're struggling in those relationships, if someone's really hurt you and you need counseling, we want to come alongside you and help get you into the place where you can find healing and restoration from these things. Women, we specifically have a group. Um, it's, it's an anonymous group, so we, we, we don't post this anywhere. But there's a group that we have a leader that is walking with abused women specifically, counseling them and walking them through restoration in these broken relationships. So if you need that, please, you can email info at fmcc.life. You can email me directly, bill at fmcc.life. We will plug you in because we want you to find healing in these areas. So here's what I love about this book. Here's, here's why I was so excited to share this. Because I know, beyond I know, beyond I know, that all people will find their death in pride and self-exaltation. 
I know that as your pastor, that every single person here will find destruction in pride and self-exaltation. But our king, our king, being rich in mercy in love because of the great love in which he has had for us will restore his kingdom and he will fight for those that are in his kingdom. He saves us, he gives us life, and he restores his kingdom in us and in the world around us. Amen? So this is how we're going to respond. I'm going to invite Miguel on up. He's going to start playing because we're going to respond in communion. And communion is this beautiful picture of forgiveness. When Jesus was with his disciples, he, he took out a piece of bread. This was in a lot of ways an analogy. And he broke this bread and he said, when you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. So he took bread and he broke it. And he wanted them to understand that this is his body. That he is now going to the cross and, and is going to be broken for them. And then he took a cup and it was filled with some sort of some wine from, from the vine. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come, we are responding with repentance and trust. Repentance saying, God, I am sorry for all of the things. So don't just come quickly. This is actually an opportunity for us to respond. This is an opportunity for us to sit with our king. Receive his forgiveness without doubt without wondering if he has forgiven you, knowing he has forgiven you. And then we come and we, we take the bread and we dip it in the, in the cup. And we take it in repentance and then trust, knowing that he is going to restore his kingdom in us. He has restored his kingdom in us. And in our world and in our community, he will. That's a promise. I know we look at our world right now and it's broken. God will restore his kingdom. He will do it. That is a promise. And so we take this in remembrance of what he has done. Can I pray for us? Jesus, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and to remember all that you have done. God, thank you for your son who has given us life, hope, grace, mercy. God, I pray that we would come humbly before you now. And if there is somebody even here in this room that we can reconcile with, God, I pray that we would do so. Receiving your forgiveness and extending your forgiveness to every man, woman, and child around us for your name and your glory. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.